Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, very good morning to you. Uh, if you don't uh, know me, my name's Chad and I am uh, privileged to be part of the leadership team here in this church. And uh, again, if you're visiting the area this long weekend, uh, thrilled that you're here and, and we can provide four seasons in one weekend for you, which is great. Uh, cheaper than going to Melbourne, but you get it all in one here. So, um, so that's, uh, that's a good thing. But I hope you enjoy your day, whatever it is that you, uh, you're choosing to do after this and uh, glad that you've uh, invested your time with us. I'm sure that you will leave here knowing that you've invested it well. And as I said before, uh, afterwards we do finish with uh, coffee. If you want to stay and join us, Brister Coffee and Tea in the foyer, more than welcome. As I said earlier, go at your own pace. And uh, we're just super, super happy that you're here. And uh, to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Who's alive? You're alive and well? I love Resurrection Sunday. I love Good Friday. It's the only public holiday we have that's got an adjective at the start of it, okay? Because uh, this whole weekend is just good. It's just a good weekend. Even if you don't go away for the long weekend, it's still a good weekend because we really are remembering something good and glorious that took place 2,000 years ago and still has eternal ramifications and something that millions, if not billions of people around the world have been celebrating for now 2,000 years and we get to join in that long line of history and celebrate the never-ending good news of Jesus dying on a cross, a brutal cross, but raising from the dead and we get to share in His resurrection life. And that, my friends, is good news. And we are in great need in our world today of hearing good news because we hear a lot of bad news. And particularly in the last couple of years, we've heard a lot of fake news. Fake news. Fake, no, that's my best Donald Trump impression I can do. I'm sorry. Fake news. You're all fake news. No, forget it. Okay. <laughs> fake news, of course, is nothing new uh, in politics, particularly. Um, <laughs> We've got an election today, uh, you know, soon, so I have to say something, you know. Uh, but of course, we've always had propaganda. We've always had some news that's been fake news where uh, people will tell a lie to try to convince people over to something for their own gain. Uh, those of you, I don't think they're allowed to read it anymore, but those of us who've, who ever studied, um, uh, dare I say his name out loud, uh, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, it was he who came up with the phrase, the big lie. Uh, the big lie, and he was famous for saying that if you tell a big lie often enough, you'll be able to convince people and people will believe it. It's harder to convince people sometimes of smaller lies, uh, because his, his idea was that almost everyone tells little lies. And so it's easier, when, you, when, you, so when someone's telling a little lie, you're like, oh, you'll lie, tell little lies, so I, I can doubt that's true. But when you're told a big lie, and you're told it again and again and again, it's actually easy to suck people in. And so here we have propaganda over the years and we have what we now contemporarily, uh, in contemporary society call fake news, which begs the question. That's right, that's right. The good news of Jesus that we've been celebrating for 2,000 years, is it good news or is it fake news? Is the good news of Jesus good news or actually is it fake news? Have people for 2,000 years been duped into believing a great conspiracy that has spread 
across the world. Is that possible? And it's an interesting question to have a look at today. The word gospel, many of you have heard the word gospel. Uh, it's, uh, we talk about the gospel of Jesus. Gospel literally means good news. And we call the first four books in our for the first century part of our Bible, the New Testament, we call them the Gospels because they talk about Jesus. So literally, we have, Christianity has framed the whole life and story of Jesus, just calling it good news. And I would like to assure you this morning that the Gospel of Jesus is most certainly not fake news, it is good news. In fact, that would probably be the greatest uh, you know, uh, understatement of two millennia, that Jesus' news is good news. It is great news. It is glorious news. It is eternally uh, relevant news. It is spread across continents of people of all different persuasions. The message of Jesus is for y'all. And the, y'all. And the good news of Jesus is simply this. The good news is that the person of Jesus has made it possible for all people to participate in the presence of God and all the provision of God, both in this life and for all life and eternity. Who Jesus is, what He has said, what He has done, how He died, how He was buried, how He rose, how He ascended, and how today He ministers and reigns and is worshipped, that Jesus, everything He is, makes it possible for all people to know God. And there is nothing more important than knowing your creator because there is nothing more important than having an eternal perspective on life and one of the reasons that people get so overwhelmed with life is because we don't have a big picture perspective we don't have we don't see things in light of eternity seeing things in light of eternity will help increase the grit in your life it will help increase you pushing and persevering through suffering and pain and inconvenience when you know that there is an eternal consequence to your life and when you have confidence that you will enjoy eternal life because of a free gift that came to you because of Jesus death on the cross that is an incredible assurance and life-giving power comes through that reality. And it is not fake news. It is a fact that Jesus rose from the dead and He is alive and well in His people today. And how many of you can agree with that and say, yes, I know that is true. Or something like that. I want you to turn, if you brought a Bible today, to the book of Acts. If you didn't bring one, that's fine because we'll put it on the screen. And I want to read a story. Uh, the book of Acts, basically there's a, a book in the New Testament called Luke. And then Acts is like volume two. So the same guy wrote two volume historical, two historical books. Okay. And he wrote them to a guy called Theophilus, who was probably a lawyer. So these books are very lawyery. They're very academic. They're very factual. They're very historical. They mention political figures who ruled for certain periods of time in certain provinces. He's very selective on how he writes his history because he's writing to someone who is most probably a Roman official, maybe even a lawyer, someone who he calls most excellent Theophilus. Okay? And so he writes the Gospel of Luke, which talks all about Jesus' first 30 years. And then he writes the Gospel of Acts, which talks about the next 30 years of history. So basically this takes us from 4 BC, which is when Jesus was born. Don't want to confuse you, but Jesus was born BC. Never mind, you can ask him one day. Um, 
about 4 BC to 30 when he died, okay, something like that. And then the book of Acts takes us from 30 through to the very early 60s, and then it ends abruptly. And one of the reasons we think it ends abruptly is because it's written to a guy that is defending Paul the Apostle in his Roman court trials. And so it's written, as I said, probably to a lawyer. What's the point, Chad? If you're visiting, every now and again, you just have to say that. Are people, what's the point, Chad? What's the point? Yeah, thank you. Okay, what's the point, Chad? The point is that the book of Acts is written as a historical document to lay out some of the historical veracity of uh, the life of Jesus. And it starts here in Acts 1. I'll read a couple of verses here in the opening. Because those of you who aren't reading the Bible at the moment, you can go home and read Acts. It's a really, really great book to read. One of my favourites. In my former book, Theophilus, Volume 1, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, that book of Luke takes us all the way up to when Jesus died and went to heaven. But that was only the beginning, he says here, of Jesus' ministry. It's only the beginning of what he was what he was doing, because he kept doing his work even after he went to heaven. What he began to do and teach until the time he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through Holy Spirit to the apostles, is chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Many convincing proofs, evidences that he was alive. Can you see the lawyer speak sort of coming out there, okay, he's, he's, he's talking to a lawyer, that's the way he's speaking. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That would have been a good 40-day uh, class. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave the city of Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father's promise, which you've heard me speak about, for John, my cousin, baptized people with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized um, with Holy Spirit. And so essentially, as you keep reading these first chapter or two of Acts, the Spirit of Jesus comes on His people to empower them to continue what Jesus started. Jesus started doing something for 30 years, and then He said, now I'm going to go to heaven and give you the same Spirit that I've got, so you can continue what I've been doing. And so that's essentially what the book of Acts is about. If Luke is about the Acts of Jesus... The book of Acts is about the acts of Jesus through his people, essentially. Okay, so that's how it goes. And so what happens is the Spirit of God comes upon his followers. There's 120 of them. They're meeting in the temple, I believe. As you read, they're meeting continually in the temple. Holy Spirit comes upon them. A whole crowd gathers, thousands of people, because uh, this, when it happened, it was happening at a big festival in Jerusalem where all these pilgrims had come celebrating something called Pentecost, okay? All these people had come, thousands of people heard this commotion and a guy called Peter, who was one of Jesus' best mates, stands up and delivers a powerful sermon. This is Peter, who a couple of weeks earlier had denied even knowing Jesus. You know the Good Friday story? Jesus is getting you know, arrested, he's getting beaten and a 10-year-old girl or a 12-year-old girl asked Peter, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter the coward that he was, could not even look a 10-year-old girl in the face and say, yes, I follow Jesus. He denied knowing Jesus, even to a little girl. So intimidated was he. And now this man, a, uh, an intimidated coward who ran away, denied Jesus, three times it says, when he denied Jesus, now he stands up in front of a hostile crowd just seven weeks later and preaches a powerful, powerful message. How many of you have freaked out at public speaking? 
you know, Jerry Seinfeld used to say, or he still does, I guess, he's alive. So the two greatest fears of people, one is death and one is public speaking. So if you're at a funeral, most people would prefer to be in the casket than doing the eulogy. Because <laughs> public speaking is really, really scary. But Peter overcame that fear just a few weeks later and spoke to a crowd. And I tell you what, I've done a bit of public speaking. And it's one thing to, one thing to speak to a friendly crowd. It's another thing to speak to a crowd that you need to win their attention. Or that possibly, right from the word go, don't like it is what you're saying and what you're doing. And Peter, a total change in his demeanour, stands up and he says this. This is recorded in chapter 2. He says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. As you yourselves know. I've never started a cult and I don't probably want to do it, but if you want to, I'm going to give you a tip about how to start a a cult, okay? (laughs) Don't start a weird religion where everyone can disprove what it is you're saying. If you've got some weird, wild claim that you want to make, what you do is you go to a foreign land where no one knows what the heck you're talking about and they're far more gullible to believe you. Peter didn't do that. Peter stood up at a crowd of people where Jesus had been ministering in that very same city where Jesus died and he said, I'm talking to you about Jesus, the one who you know did miracles. You know he did miracles because you were here. It was only seven weeks ago where he raised a guy called Lazarus from the dead and thousands of people heard about it. It was only a couple of months ago where he healed a blind person. Everyone heard it was only a couple of months before that. And then he raised a widow's son from the grave, from death. This is an incredible miracle worker and he did the miracles among you as you yourselves know. So he was preaching to a crowd who knew what he was talking about. That makes sense? They knew that Jesus had walked their very streets. Everyone had heard of this guy called Jesus. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you, but it was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The cross of Christ was not a surprise to God. In fact, the New Testament goes on to say it was a mystery, it was a secret that God kept hidden. It was actually his purpose and plan that was fulfilled and it was fulfilled at the hands of wicked men that hated Jesus. And God used those men to fulfill his purpose. I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament, but one of the, um, uh, in the Old Testament, God's given many different names. And his name always starts with Jehovah. So it's Jehovah Rapha, which is a Hebrew word meaning healer, I think. Uh, Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord is my righteousness. Um, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord is my provider. Okay, so many of us believe that one of his names should be Jehovah Sneaky. <laughs> because God just snuck this whole cross thing in when no one saw it coming, okay? The point is, it's a good Friday because God had predestined Jesus to go to the cross. It did not take God by surprise. It did not take Jesus by surprise. And they thought they were having their way with him. And Jesus proved them all wrong. You, with the help of wicked men, says this courageous fisherman, Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Again, something they all knew had taken place. 
on the day there in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, it was a big Jewish festival. It was called Passover. I kind of mentioned it before. Thousands and thousands of people uh, came from all over the place to the city. Okay, they, they gathered there every year for this special festival. And while Jesus is being crucified out in the hills somewhere, the priests are there in the temple doing their thing. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, I think it was, the whole sky went dark. Thousands of people experienced that in this city. The ground shook, a massive earthquake came, and right there in the temple, the curtain, this massive curtain that they had in the temple, tore in two from top to bottom. It was a supernatural thing. Everyone in Jerusalem knew that Jesus had died on the cross. Everyone knew that he'd done miracles. Everyone knew, everyone was talking about it. Everyone knew he'd died on the cross, and this is where Peter is preaching. And he said, you are the guys that put him there. Verse 24, but... God. They're going to be two of my favorite words in the Bible. But God. Come on. Interact with me. Say, but God. Come on. Some of, you, some of us need to say that for us, for our own life. When stuff, like, when stuff happens, you don't know. Maybe God's working behind the scenes and you can say it all looks pretty dark. But God. But God. Okay. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was actually impossible for death to keep its hold on him. One of the things that Hebrew people, Jewish people did, is they saw death as like, they personified death. So death wasn't just an event, it wasn't just a thing, it was like a person, and it was like a place. And, and, and death was seen to uh, the poets like, uh, what's his name? David, King David, played a harp, right? And he, he talked about the chords of death entangling him. It's like tentacles coming out to reach him. And uh, Peter's saying, listen, Jesus died, but death could not hold on to him. It was impossible. Death is seen as a, it's personified in this, in this way, okay? Verse 25, David said about him, I, and this is Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me. Because God is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices my body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And if you go and read Psalm 16, he actually leaves a line out, the very last line of that Psalm, which is awesome, which says, and there are eternal pleasures at your right hand forevermore. And so David is sing, singing in the midst of his struggles, because David was an emotional guy, so he had dramas all the time, right? And he sung songs about it. And in this song, he's singing, listen, you will not abandon me. You will not abandon me to the place of death. Other translations say to the realm of the dead. You will not let my body see decay, your holy ones see decay. You will um, make known to me paths. You will welcome me to your presence and there will be pleasure forevermore which must be pretty disappointing for David because he actually did die. So here he is in an emotional part of his life singing a song about not dying, God not letting him go to the place of the dead, which is no Jewish person ever wanted to go to the place of the dead. Okay, it was like a silent place, there was nothing happening there. The whole cosmic, the way they, their cosmology happened back in Mesopotamia is they saw the underworld right under the depths of the sea. So they used to call it the grave or the pit or whatever, it's a place of darkness, okay, and no one wanted to go there, they just didn't want to be abandoned uh, to that place, and David's singing that, but David did die, 
So if he's not singing about himself, then why would they include this psalm in the book? I mean, it's a bit embarrassing. You better take that psalm away. David was wrong. Don't include it in the canon. Next verse. Brothers, says Peter, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David actually died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew God had promised in on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. So seeing what was ahead, he spoke, not of his resurrection, but he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, the grave, nor did his body see decay. Too powerful, I don't have time to go into this, but it's really interesting. Uh, Jesus' resurrection coin has two sides, boom, boom, and both are equally true. One is that something invisible happened when Jesus died. That he went to the grave, to the realm of the dead, and he was raised up, the invisible part of Jesus, soul, spirit, whatever term you want to use, was raised up out of there. And, and no one, that was an invisible thing that happened. And the Bible goes on to say, while he was there, he spoke to people, even people right back as far as Noah. Okay, he spoke to those people in that, his invisible part of himself. That's, that's one aspect of Jesus' resurrection. He was raised out from the place of death. But equally true, boom, boom, the other side of that coin, is his body did not decay. So when we speak of Jesus' resurrection, there's two realities. Physically, his physical body rose. And invisibly, he rose out of the place of the dead. And that may not seem like a big deal to you and me, but for first century Jewish people, massive deal. Because it gave them hope that their ancestors could also come out of that place of death and go to heaven. Important, not enough time to go into it today. God, it says has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. For David did not ascend to heaven. David didn't go to heaven. David went to that place of death that he didn't want to go when he died. David didn't ascend to heaven and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? We've heard the facts. We now know what that means. What the heck does it matter to us? What shall we do in response to the fact of his resurrection, the fact that this has now cut us to the heart? Because how many of you know it's one thing to be convinced in your mind, but it's another thing. When you come to Christ, it's a conviction in your heart. They were cut to the heart. Earlier, before this, Jesus appeared to two people on the road to Emmaus. Some of you have heard that story at the end of Luke's Gospel. And it said, he, Jesus explained the Scriptures to them as, as they were walking. But it wasn't until their hearts burned within them that they realized Jesus was who He said He was. They had heartburn, Holy Spirit heartburn. And these people were cut to the heart. They said, we, want to, we know there's something. We need to do something. This is true. And if it's true, we need to do something about it. What do we do? And Peter said, change the way you think, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. You will receive Holy Spirit, and this promise is for you and your kids, and for all who are far away, for all who the Lord, Lord our God will call. 
And that, my friends, is my scripture reading for the day. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, you're not traditional enough. Not nearly, nearly traditional enough. We didn't even know what to say. You've still got Easter eggs in your teeth. I know, that's it. Go back to verse 32. Peter says, among other things, he says, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. We are all witnesses of the fact. There were many things that made Peter, Peter, really, really confident that day. One of them was most assuredly that Jesus had personally reinstated his confidence. Jesus denied, no, other way around, Peter denied Jesus three times. Don't know him, don't know him, don't know him, cock-a-doo-doo-doo, right? <laughs> and then Jesus reinstated him three times. You've still got a ministry, mate. Feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my lambs. I'm sure that gave Peter some confidence. I'm sure it gave him confidence that he had the Holy Spirit burning within him. But the other confidence Peter had is that he knew it was a fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was not spreading fake news. He was speaking that day the fact of the resurrection of Christ. And what fascinates me about this verse is he says, we are all witnesses of the fact. Now, I don't know what that means. But I'm very happy to speculate because that's what we do, right? When he says we're all witnesses of the fact, does he mean me, Peter, and the rest of the 12, minus one, the rest of the 11 apostles? Does he mean we 11 are witnesses of the fact? Well, he could mean that because after all, those 11 had all seen Jesus after he'd raised from the dead. Yeah, he appeared to them in an upper room. He had fish with them on the beach, had a bit of a barbecue there, went out fishing, you know, went out fishing. Uh, Thomas, as you know, did not believe when they told him, hey, Jesus raised from the dead, and he said, nah, not going to have anything to do with that. Remember that? You've heard me say, some of you have heard me say before, often we give Thomas a bit of a hard time. Okay, we call him Doubting Thomas because he doubted that Jesus had raised from the dead, but it's possible he was actually believing Thomas. It's possible he didn't believe because he remembered Jesus had said, many false Christs will come, don't believe them. So it's possible Thomas was actually being the intelligent one and saying, Jesus warned us that people would come and say, I'm just, so I'm not going to believe until I touch him. Because Jesus came and he allowed Thomas. So these 11 were witnesses of the fact. So he could mean that. He could mean when he said, we are all witnesses of the fact, he could mean we 120 day of Pentecost, so 120 Christians, they weren't called Christians yet, but Christians there. Okay, he could have meant saying, us, me, and 119 others, we are witnesses of the fact. Because the scriptures go on to say that Jesus appeared not just to the 12, he appeared to up to 500 different people over those 40 days. He appeared physically, visibly, touch, touchily, okay, to, to, to many people over that time. So it's possible, he said, we 120 are witnesses of the fact. But there's also another possibility. The other possibility is, as he was speaking to thousands of people that day in Jerusalem, he meant we are all witnesses of the fact. 
They all knew that Jesus had walked those very streets committing miracles. They all knew about Jesus' miracles. They all knew about his teaching. They all knew about his trial. Everyone knew that, you know, for Pontius Pilate, what's his name, to get involved in crucifying a Jew last minute, that was a big deal. Everyone knew that was happening. Everyone knew Jesus died because they all had a blackout in the middle of the day. Couldn't blame S.A. Powell. They all had a massive blackout. And everyone was talking about that. How does that happen? They all knew that an earthquake had taken place. They all knew that their curtain had been torn. They all knew something's going on and everyone was talking about Jesus. And now I wonder if Peter says, we all know he rose from the dead. Because this was not fake news that was being spread, as I said, in a foreign land. This was preached in a place that was 10 minutes walk from the tomb where Jesus was buried. 10 minutes walk. They knew it was a fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, not just because of the testimony of people who you can disbelieve if you want, not just because the rumors had got around, not just because Jesus himself said it, but they knew because there was this undeniable reality. Everyone's talking about the miracles. Everyone's talking about his death and everyone knows that tomb is empty. We all know that tomb is empty and the Romans, the politicians are freaking out about it because they know this could end Pax Romana. Pax Romana is a peaceful thing that was happening in Rome. They didn't like war. They, they, they valued peace and if this Messiah was actually risen, man, they would want to squash that rumour and they couldn't because the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty and that's one of the main evidences, one of the main things we can have faith in knowing that that was that empty tomb. And this man could say, we all know that. My friends, it is a fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Our faith is not based on fantasy. Our faith is not based on fake news. Our faith is based on the fact of the empty tomb, that Jesus walked out of there alive and well. Amen? It's a good day. Andrew. Okay. Okay. Okay, okay, I think, I think I get your point. So, for those who can't hear, because you don't have a microphone, thank God. Because <laughs> it would wreck the whole thing, you know. Maybe the disciples faked it. Maybe it is fake news because, yes, there was an empty tomb, and everyone could acknowledge that there was an empty tomb, but there's another possible way the tomb could get empty, that the disciples stole the body, made up the whole story. Okay. Okay. So that kind of idea, you're a smart guy, but it's not an original idea. People have pitched that theory for about 2,000 years. In fact, that was one of the very first um, theories to explain away the resurrection that happened right from day one. Matthew's Gospel actually records it. Matthew's Gospel is written in about 50, early 50-something 50 AD. So within 20 years, a rumour had got around that the disciples had stolen his body. Now, 
it's a, it's a reasonable thought, but it's not a reasonable solution, in my opinion. Here's why. There's basically two types of evidence when we talk about something being a fact. One is scientific evidence. You can prove that by repeating it again and again. And the other type of evidence is like legal evidence. This is, if this went to a judge and jury and you were to have people argue their sides, it's not something that's repeatable like science, but it's can you rely on the testimonies of those people? And I don't know how many of you have ever been on jury duty, but you know, those of us who have uh, read crime novels or whatever, we know that one of the main things when someone commits a crime, because that would be a crime, lying about it, stealing a body would most certainly be a crime. If that were to be the case, then one of the first things, of course, you look for is motive. What is the motive of this person stealing something, a body? What is the motive of this person lying about it? And while there are many arguments about why it's, it's, it's not uh, well supported that the disciples could have stolen the body, while I do understand, I don't think it holds water, one of those main things really is motive. I mean, if you're going to steal something, you're going to make sure you personally benefit. If, you, if you're going to start a religion on the basis of a, of a fake, fake news, dead Messiah then what you're going to do is you're going to make sure that if you want to become the first pope, maybe that's what Peter wanted to do, that you can earn money from that, you can earn prestige from that, and you can earn power for that if you are going to hold and maintain that lie. That would be good motive. And yet that is the very opposite of what we see of these men that started this faith. The men, these 12 men, these 11 men who stood up with Peter that day, to lie about that initially is one thing, but to keep maintaining that fake news the way that they did for, gener- for, for decades is near impossible to believe. Do you know how some of these men died? Not only were they disowned by their family, not only were they looked to be the scum of the earth, they didn't benefit from it in any way. Peter, Andrew, James and Philip and Simon, or Simon's Peter, were all crucified and some of them upside down for preaching the resurrection. Matthew was killed with a sword. Thaddeus was shot dead with arrows. James, Jesus' brother, was stoned to death by the high priest. Thomas was speared to death. Bartholomew was skinned alive, apparently, and then crucified. John, apparently, legend has it, was placed in a vat of boiling oil before being left to die. These are men that at any chance, if they really stole the body... If they emptied the tomb themselves, you're not going to tell me that one of those men during any of that torture will say, that's it, we'll, we'll get you the body, the whole thing's a sham, the whole thing's a fake. For decades and decades, and then hundreds, if not thousands of people after them, you read first century history, and you've got Nero that would crucify people, feed believers in Jesus, two wild animals. These were people that weren't living on a lie. These are the testimony of people that truly believed the fact of the resurrection. So while it is a logical idea that, okay, maybe the disciples stole the body, they stood to gain nothing from it. In fact, all they did was lose their very lives. I'm not particularly sure that's a good answer. Plus, Jesus, remember, prophesied that he would rise from the dead. He predicted that that would happen. Okay. Ian, yes. Yes. If Jesus faked it. Okay. Okay, okay. 
Okay, okay, okay. So the question is, if the disciples didn't fake it, what if Jesus faked it? What if he faked his own death? Well, there's a couple of initial issues with that, Ian. The first couple of obvious ones still has to do with Jesus' character. That would be to fake his own death and then fake his own resurrection would be drastically against the character of everything we'd seen of Jesus for those three years. You'd have to get past that before a judge and jury. You'd also actually then have to ask the question about the personal motive for Jesus himself. If you're going to fake your own resurrection and then claim that you are the Messiah raised from the dead, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to stick around for as long as you possibly can, having people worship you and bring you gold and silver. You're not going to disappear a few uh, weeks later and never come on the scene. If Jesus faked his own resurrection, he had nothing to gain by doing that because history shows he didn't stay around on the scene to benefit it from any way. But the idea of Jesus faking his own resurrection is almost... More of a miracle than him actually rising from the dead. <laughs> if you think, it kind of reminds me of people who like to, uh, you know, explain away the crossing of the Red Sea. Oh, yeah, Israel, thousands of people walked through the Red Sea because Charlton Hes- uh, Moses parted the sea with his magic stick, you know. And people walk through, you go, that doesn't happen because science shows you can actually walk through the Red Sea on reeds at a very shallow bit. And so that's what happened. They actually walked through on the shallowest bit of the river. And people explain away. And I just think, well, that's an even greater miracle. If they walk through the Red Sea in shallow water, that's an even greater miracle because that means all Pharaoh's armies died in water that thick. (laughs) So in the same way, to believe that Jesus faked his own resurrection, i tell you what he has to do. Number one, he has to convince the Romans. That's almost impossible. Pilate, who put him together, remember he was a political, he died under political watch. Pilate would have had to have uh, given, Pilate gave permission for his body to come down. You've got trained soldiers there that took his body down. You've got a medical condition that without any just found out about eight or nine hundred years after Jesus died called hypovolemic shock, which is where when they put the sword in his side, it says blood and water flowed and John who writes about that did that because he was a mystic okay and he was trying to communicate to his audience that just as Adam had given birth to Eve from his side so on the cross Jesus gave birth to his church his bride that's why John wrote about it what they that's what he was trying to communicate what they didn't know back then was that that was absolute medical proof of someone died it's one of the things that they'll go through after after absolute heart shock and you can you can look that up I mean I know you've dealt with dead corpses before you used to work in the in in the funeral industry you know when a body is dead the Romans he Jesus would have had to fool the Romans he would have had to have fooled two Jewish men that buried him that took him to a tomb they wrapped him up in linen cloths okay it's it's um they wrapped him tight how many remember the story of Lazarus when he came out of the tomb okay and he was wrapped in linen cloths and he was jumping around like this and Jesus said unwrap the guy you know unwrap him why because he was so tightly wrapped kind of like a mummy he was so tightly wrapped he couldn't get out Jesus would have had to have unwrapped himself he then would have had to have moved a massive bone uh, a stone boulder that was in front they used to put a big stone boulder in a groove and he would have had to move that he would have had to have got past the guards he would have had to have then a day later after being whipped 
after being speared in the side, after being smacked over the head, after having his beard plucked out, he would have had to appear so healthy and wonderful and whole that he could convince his apostles that he had actually raised from the dead. I don't know what kind of first aid he must have found in that day, but he might have gone to Thailand, got some plastic surgery suddenly in 12 hours and just came back a whole new man. He would have had to convince so many people. And I just think if that that's an almost a bigger miracle uh, to think that Jesus could convince people and again convince others to give their life for him. I just think it is completely implausible that Jesus could have actually faked his own death and the testimony of the number of people that he appeared to. These were people that were really convinced that Jesus had in fact risen. Thanks for your point though. Okay, so the the argument there is that people were so, they wanted to believe it. You're a trans counsellor. Amazing you'd ask that question, having, you know... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, okay. It's like the deception runs wild, isn't it there? Um, those who are deceived about... I can't explain that one. Um, I, I, uh, I just can't do that one at all. It is possible, those of you who know, when a loved one dies and it was a complete shock, like you get a phone call and the person that you're with that morning... You just found out died in a car accident or something like that. The complete um, shock of that and disbelief of that. That is a possible scenario where people can um, then just totally not believe and, and, and maybe even see things. People even talk about when they have a, uh, someone goes missing. Uh, they go shop through Woolies or they walk through the shops and they, they, they're like sure that they saw that person. And you know, then they have to sort of check themselves and go, no, 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 I, I don't think it can be them. Um, the other instance and the way that you mention it there is when people want it so bad to happen. Maybe like the poor power thing. They want it so they want it so bad to happen that they see it. It's a bit like people when they go hunting for um, yeah, maybe Tasmanian tigers or Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or something. They so want to see something. They're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can see it. Like people who look at those 3D pictures and you know, they yeah, move their eyes and they think there's a boat there. There's nothing there. You're all deceived. <laughs> Those things do not work. I don't know. I don't know. I just, no, I can't get them. I can't get them. But the point is, when people so want to see something. But the idea about Jesus' disciples, you know, they weren't shocked at Jesus' death. They watched it happen. They watched, it took days. It wasn't like a phone call that said, Jesus is gone, is here today, now he's gone tomorrow. They weren't in shock. They knew that this thing was happening. There was trials involved. There was testimonies involved. There was crucifixions involved. There were signs and wonders involved. It wasn't like a shock that Jesus had died. That, that wouldn't have applied to them. And the other thing about them wanting it to happen, they didn't believe the resurrection would happen. And it's one of the things about why the disciples are a trustworthy source, because as they write about themselves, they look like a bunch of idiots. They look like a bunch of twits. The first people to have believed Jesus rose from the dead were the women in the group. And this doesn't mean much to us today, but in first century, uh, in first century culture, women had legally half the testimony of a man. It was like embarrassing for a woman to be proven right. Because the men 
They should have been the ones that saw Jesus first, yet they wrote that into the gospel. They made themselves look like fools because why? They weren't expecting the resurrection. They weren't hopeful that it would happen. They completely doubted it and the whole thing took them by surprise. And of course, one of the biggest points I think about that is could they be convinced enough to convince others? People have said that they've seen Elvis. People have said that they've seen Princess Di. People have said that they've seen Bigfoot, seen the Loch Ness Monster, these type of I, I know I've seen it. But their ability to convince other people. How many you know sometimes you hear a story from a person and you know they believe what they're talking about and you just nod politely? <laughs> because you know they don't have the power to convince others and yet the amazing testimony about the followers of Jesus who were not expecting it is that their testimony for years is not just their ability to, convict, to convince others in their mind, but the ability of a change of heart in people. In, 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 in not scientific argument again, but lawyer argument, one of the greatest witnesses you can have is a hostile witness, someone who doesn't want something to be true, and yet they admit that it is. Some, they don't, and Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest evangelists in that first century was probably the greatest example of that. He did not want the resurrection of Jesus to be true. And yet in a radical change, not because he encountered a convincing salesperson in Jerusalem, but because he encountered a living Jesus, his mind and his heart shifted. A hostile witness, someone, it went completely against the... T he had to repent. He had to go on record and say, I was wrong all these years. And that, my friends, and many of us men, many of you people know, is a very difficult thing to do when you've been wrong for so long. And, and Paul made that turn. And I know that's the testimony of some of you here in this room. See, many of you in this room, how, how many of you are mostly if not fully convinced in your mind that Jesus rose from the dead show of hands how many of you are mostly if not fully convinced okay how many of you are completely convinced in your heart that Jesus has risen from the dead how many of you would not put your hands up even if I asked you to put your hands up to anything <laughs> ah, there's always one I know that If someone doesn't want to believe, they will never believe. And yeah, we can back and forth and do the whole intellectual argument thing. But on that day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and he said, this is a fact, he didn't try to convince them with intellectual facts. They knew. They knew the tomb was empty. They knew Jesus was around. What those people needed and what those people experienced that day was a change in heart because they actually met God that day. What Paul the Apostle had while he knew the intellectual facts, he actually had an encounter with Jesus that changed his heart. And we can back and forth on arguments and philosophy like this. I mean, I'm, this is what I'm, I'm not trained in theology. I'm trained in philosophy. I'm, th this is bantering back and forth on what do you believe? I believe this. That's fine. I can do that all day. But that's not going to change anything for you. Because even people like me who've been following Jesus for the best part of my life, I'm not fully convinced in my mind that Jesus physically rose from the dead. That's why I asked you before, are you mostly to fully convinced? Because in your mind, you can always doubt. If you can be argued intellectually into something, then you can be argued intellectually out of it. But I tell you where I'm fully convinced. I'm fully convinced in a heart that God has touched. That you can't convince me otherwise because I have met this Jesus. And this room today is full of people that have met 
this Jesus, not just a historical Jesus, but have met a living and alive Jesus today. In 2,000 years, there will not be a movement of people that believe Elvis rose from the dead. That'll die off in a generation. Thanks, baby boomers. That'll die in a generation. But Jesus is alive and well today because he makes himself real to the hearts of men. And I don't know everyone here today, I know by the show of hands, it seems like there's the majority of us have met Jesus. But for those of you who didn't, some of you just never put up your hand, but for those of you who don't know Jesus, I want to let you know I've been praying for you this week. That as much as I can prepare and maybe even set up a few people in case you didn't notice, (laughs) I know that that'll be never enough to convince some of you. But Jesus is alive and well, and this is a heart issue. The heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. And I want to encourage you today, open your heart to the possibility. No, 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 I want to rephrase. Open your heart to the reality that Jesus is alive and well. At the end of that sermon, when Peter was preaching, I read it before, he said, this promise is for all those whom the Lord our God will call. And I'd like to think today that some of us here, that understand I'm not here by accident today. I've heard some interesting things. I've heard some boring things. I've got a free chocolate egg. But actually, these people are convinced of something, and I'd like to have that conviction. And all I want to do right now is I want to give the invisible God an opportunity to knock on the door of your heart. So I'm going to ask everyone just to close your eyes just for 20 seconds, okay? Really easy, because I don't know everyone here. So close your eyes. I'm just going to ask, Holy Spirit, would you minister to the hearts of people here today? Would you make the reality of your resurrection life so full and so real to every soul. And to those who don't know you yet today, I pray that right now, you would let them know your reality. You would let them know that you are knocking on the door of their heart and saying, let me in. Let me in. Okay. Just look at me again. You know, there's a scripture that says if you believe in your heart that God rose Jesus from the dead, not even believe in your brain, as intelligent as that is, because it's the best option. But if you believe in your heart that God rose Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that He is Lord, He's in charge, He's the boss, He the man, it says you will be saved, you will be forgiven of sin. And eternal life, the promise of the gift of eternal life will be yours. And that invitation is open for you today. If you've never accepted that invitation, I really want to encourage you to do that today. In fact, it was 12 months ago here on Easter Sunday where one of the girls that was singing this morning did that very thing. Actually, I accept that invitation today. And it's as simple as ABC. You just acknowledge, A, acknowledge that God is real. I acknowledge you. I felt something in the door of my heart just then. I acknowledge you. B, I believe in Jesus. I believe. I might still have questions, but I believe. I've got enough to know that I believe this whole Jesus thing is real. And C, you cooperate with Him. And one of the best ways you can cooperate with Him is just by saying yes to Him, by speaking with your mouth, saying yes. Jesus, come into my life. I receive eternal life today. 
And I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. And while I don't understand everything, I want to know you today. I want to walk in into a relationship with you. If you've never done that before, and you'd like to do that today, I'd love to come and pray with you and speak with you. Maybe even Rob Maureen, some friends of ours, I had them come and speak with you as well. But while you're looking at me, just make eye contact with me. If that's you today, I want you to put up your hand. So I, I'd love to say yes to Jesus today. I've never done that before, but I'd love to say yes to Jesus. If that's you, why don't you put up your hand and I'll make sure I come and speak to you later. Is there anyone here? Just looking around. Put up your hand if that's you. Just on three, two, one. Okay. If that's you today, I mean, I have been praying for people. I'd like to think that there are people like that in this room that would love to walk into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're not willing to put your hand up, but if you're willing to come speak to me, I'd love to have a chat with you over coffee today. All right. This could be the very reason that you're here. And new life in a relationship with God that means that you can enjoy Him now and guaranteed for all eternity can be yours today. I'd love to chat with you. Make sure you don't go before you do that. Okay? How many of you love Him today? Once you, band come. I'd like to finish with a s- scripture I found this week in the Passion Version of the Bible. It's Strange wording, but I'd like to read it to you. It says this in Ephesians 1. I pray that you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to you through faith. Then your lives will be an advertisement of this immense power as it works through you. This is His mighty power that was released when God raised Christ from the dead and exalted Him to the place of highest honor and supreme authority in the heavenly realm. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, both invisibly, out of the realm of the dead, and physically, that same power that has come to us can work through us. And Paul says in this verse, I want your life to be an advertisement of that immense power. How many of you want your life to be an advertisement of God's power. You know, around here we talk about demonstrating God's love. We know what it is to be Jesus' hands and feet demonstrating His love to people. We want to demonstrate God's truth and speak the truth in love. But we also want to be advertisements of God's immeasurable, great life. And my hope for you today is that more and more you walk in the resurrection life of Jesus because His life, His resurrection life is a fact. And His resurrection life through you is what the world around us so desperately needs. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's dead people that need that life to come to them. So can you be a good advertisement with me and advertise His life this weekend? You do that? Amen. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.